Welcome to the Tigers History Podcast. I'm Nathan Bierma. Like countless Tiger fans, Dan Dickerson grew up going to games at Tiger Stadium and listening to Ernie Harwell on the radio. He never imagined then that it would fall to him to take over the microphone from a broadcasting legend. As he prepares for his 19th season with the Tigers and his 16th as the team's lead radio voice, I talked with Dickerson about his earliest memories as a fan and making his own connection with fans as a broadcaster. We are in the midst of a Michigan winter, but I guarantee once you hear this man's voice, it will sound a lot more like spring. Dan Dickerson is the radio voice of the Detroit Tigers. Dan, really appreciate your time. Thanks for joining me. You bet. Let's do it. You wrote a foreword to a book by the great Tigers historian Bill Anderson called The Glory Years of the Detroit Tigers. And in that foreword, you write about the baseball room at your house. Tell us, what is the baseball room? How did it get started? And what are some of your most prized possessions in it? <laughs> so it's funny when we're built the house that we're currently living in in the late 90s, and the question as we were building it was, did we want to finish this bonus room above the garage? It was like, do we have the money? Do we want to do it? And my wife convinced me by saying, hey, well, just call it the baseball room. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, okay. So, I mean, the fan has a, the light on the fan up there has a, is a baseball. The, the slats on the fan are bats. I mean, it's, so it's got a, a little bit of a baseball theme. And it's, for me, I'm not a big memorabilia guy, but, um, oh, I don't know, little artifacts, just things that would only have value to me, really, like a catcher's glove from the 1930s that friends found at a, an old, uh, antique store years ago. I mean, that, I, I love that. Um, pictures mostly and books, I, I books and books and books, you know, baseball guides from the 1980s and registers from the 80s on up and not a complete collection, but it's fun. I mean, it's just, uh, it's a good place to just kind of get organized and uh, have anything baseball related. So we know there's an Ernie Harwell room in the Detroit Public Library. Should they be making plans for a Dan Dickerson annex years down the road? <laughs> His collection is Unbelievable. I mean, just unbelievable. I had the privilege of going into that room years ago. It just—it was all stored. It wasn't even on display, and it was uh, just phenomenal. I mean, reach guides from the 1890s just uh, blew me away. So I don't think I'll ever rival that, but they're glad to have anything that I've got. <laughs> what are your earliest memories of going to games at Tiger Stadium, and who were your favorite Tigers to follow as a kid? Uh, you know, the, I was fortunate to be started getting interested in baseball in the late 60s. It couldn't have been a better time to be a, a Tiger fan. Uh, I remember the end. I remember my dad taking me to a game in 67, and I swear this is true. I mean, if you look at pictures of the 60s, a lot of the men in the crowd are wearing coats and ties, and I, I swear, I may be wrong, but I swear I wrote a little, uh, uh, wore a little clip-on tie with a plaid jacket <laughs> attending my first baseball game. <laughs> Uh, and, uh, you know, my dad was a big sports fan, mom not so much, but to their everlasting credits. And, um, you know, they fostered my love of the game by just taking me down all the time with my brother. We went to a game in 69. I'll never forget that we both got a baseball. And I guess people weren't clamoring around the dugouts for baseball all the time. Tommy Matchett gave my brother one. Joe Sparma gave me a baseball, and I still had that ball. Uh, not signed just on display with Joe's name and the date. So, I mean, that's just, I, I just love being at the ballpark. And when I got my driver's license at 16 in 1974, they uh, 
they let me drive down to downtown Detroit and go to ball games. Bucks fifty in the center field bleachers when I first started to go, and I'd park at Irene Sember's parking lot, three blocks west of the east of the ballpark, and um, I was hooked. I was just absolutely hooked. I loved everything about it. Loved everything about being at the ballpark, and you know that that '68 team certainly was my formative years, and I, I was hooked. And you know, we imitated everybody's batting stance in that lineup. Uh, Willie Horton was just my favorite because he, you know, he was that power guy. I was fascinated by the power in that bat. And of course, Al Kaline. Uh, I mean, you can just go right down that lineup. I mean, that that team drew me into baseball. So in 1999, you got the chance of a lifetime to join Ernie Harwell in the booth at Tiger Stadium. How did that come about, and what was his surprising request or offer? <laughs> it was uh, a couple of weeks before I was working at WJR, and Steve Courtney and I did the pre- and post-game uh, for Tigers baseball. And so we were at the ballpark a lot, and a few weeks before um, the last game, which was going to be a sun-up to sundown coverage on WJR, uh, my boss called me in and said, would you like to join Ernie Harwell in the booth for the last three innings? I said, sure, that's a no-brainer. What am I supposed to do? He said, well, just, you know, sit in there with Ernie and he'll call the last three innings. I thought, well, that's great because the idea at the time was Jim Price is going to go and get ready for the post-game ceremonies after the sixth inning. And then they said, well, maybe you'll get to call the sixth inning. Jim might leave after the fifth. So I'm preparing like I'm going to calling Game 7 of the World Series, and then two days before, they're like, no, it looks like Jim's going to leave after his last inning. So you'll just basically be keeping Ernie company, <laughs> which he hardly needed <laughs> for those last three innings. So the booth, if you can picture, I mean, the booth is, you know, it's just tiny. I don't know, 10 feet by 6 feet, maybe? And so I'm standing behind Ernie and Jim as they're calling the game, standing next to the legendary engineer Howard Stitzel, and I wanted to listen to what they were talking about just because I didn't want to repeat anything when I went on the air with Ernie. So while Jim was on the air, Ernie, as he often did, stood up and stretched his legs and looked at me and said, so what's the plan here? <laughs> I'm thinking, nobody nobody talked this over with Ernie. <laughs> nobody told him why I'm here. So I said, well, I think I'm going to join you in the top of the seventh and stay out of your way until the end of the game. He said, you want to do anything? I mean, think about this. His last three innings at Tiger Stadium, a place he's called home for decades, and he wants to give me an inning. I said, no, it's your last three innings. And he said, do you want to do anything? And he asked me twice. I said, well, I'm not going to say no twice because I was ready. I said, sure. He said, okay, here's what we'll do. I'll come back and I'll call the top of the seventh inning. Then I'll introduce you, and you do the bottom of the seventh, top of the eighth, last game at Tiger Stadium. <laughs> it was unbelievable. It's one of the most selfless acts I've ever, I mean, you talk, he wanted to help a young broadcaster uh, and who wanted to get into baseball broadcasting. And he'd listen to my tapes through the 90s and he wanted to give me a shot. So, and he was great. You know, his style with his partners through the years, they didn't, there wasn't a lot of back and forth. But with me, it was, folks, you listen to the major league debut of Dan Dickerson. Dan, when was your first game? I mean, anything to make me sound good feel comfortable, um, he, he would do. And it was, I thought it went pretty smoothly for the bottom of the seventh, top of the eighth. And then as all the flashballs started to go off, probably in about the fifth inning, <laughs> and then exploded in the last two innings, I got a chance to watch him say goodbye and uh, watch those last 
two half innings uh, from the best seat in the house. It was, it was incredible, and I do think it helped me get into the booth the next year. I mean, I'd done a lot of practicing, but I'd never, I'd never done baseball professionally in the minor leagues or anywhere else other than practice at Tiger Stadium. And Mr. Illich actually stopped by the broadcast booth on the way out. The owner's suite, quote-unquote, was right next to the booth and said something like, was that you that I heard? And I said, yes. And he goes, something like, sounded good, and then walked away. <laughs> but I do think that one inning helped, you know, get me into the booth the next year as the middle innings guy for uh, for Ernie. And the Robert Fick Grand Slam was in the bottom of the eighth, right? So Ernie called that. Did you ever wonder about what would have happened if that had come while you were calling the game? Oh, no, that was that was all him. <laughs> that would not have been right if it had been on my plate. I got a chance to call a great, I think it was Carlos, uh, wasn't Carlos Beltran. Who would it have been anyway? Somebody made a great catch in the bullpen tripping over the mounds for Kansas City. Uh, and uh, so I got I got a chance to call a couple of exciting plays. But no, that Robert Fick home run, I mean, that, that was the perfect ending for Ernie, because then in the top of the ninth, he kind of set the game aside and said goodbye. That broadcast booth at Tiger Stadium, as you mentioned, was quite cramped, but it's remembered quite fondly by so many for its proximity to the field. I read once that it was 89 feet away from home plate, so it was actually closer to home plate than first base was. And Ernie talked so fondly about how you could hear the good and the bad of everything that was being said on the field. Did Ernie, or does Jim Price, or do you remember any self-consciousness about being that close to the game? Is it tougher to say, oh, I can't believe the umpire called that one a strike, when it's possible that the participants on the field are hearing you? I would have been fascinated to call games there, because let's face it, there were many times when the, the ballpark was not full. Now, when I did my one inning, it was full and noisy, and you didn't worry about anybody hearing what you might say, but I had, there had to be days. Heck, I was in that ballpark when there were small crowds and not making a lot of noise, and you've got to believe if you're that close to <laughs> home plate, they were listening to your play-by-play half the time. <laughs> it's, I mean, I always say, you know, when people come visit our booth, look at the top of the screen behind home plate at Comerica Park. That's where the booth was at Tiger Stadium. That's how close you were. So the obvious question is, how do you compare Tiger Stadium and Comerica Park? And in many ways, the parks just aren't comparable. But do you ever wonder what would have happened if the Tigers had pursued a wholesale renovation of Tiger Stadium the way that Fenway Park and Wrigley Field have been overhauled? And Wrigley is being rebuilt practically from the ground up. But do you ever think about what would have happened had the Tigers gone that route and stayed at Tiger Stadium? Yeah, I don't think about it a lot now. I did at the time, and I mean, I'm on record as, you know, being a talk show host is, is favoring in the in the 90s, saving uh, Tiger Stadium. There were many passionate, uh, it, there were a couple of architects who who tried to put together a, did put together a, a plan to save it. I mean, I, I thought there were a lot of creative efforts. I thought it could have been saved. But that, you know, that was me. That was me being nostalgic. And But also, I mean, we've, like you said, with Fenway and Rickley, we've seen that it was possible. And now, having been at Comerica Park for all these years, I just love it. I do. I grew up at Tiger Stadium, and I, I, I love Comerica Park. I love the, the vantage point. Um, I love looking out at the cityscape, the, the high-rises, the downtown buildings, looking out center field, and I love hearing people come in from out of town and saying it's one of their favorite ballparks, and a lot do. So, yeah, I, I mean, I'm on record as saying I wish I could have saved it, and at this point, no, I, I don't really think about it a whole lot just because I'm so comfortable and I, I do love the way they designed Comerica Park and how fan-friendly it is. 
So you worked alongside Ernie Harwell for three seasons, and as you mentioned, corresponded with him throughout the 90s. His voice, his accent, his mannerisms, his catchphrases were so distinctive. They were impossible to imitate. Is it harder to learn from a broadcaster like that who is truly unique? Or is it easier because you're liberated from any temptation to try to imitate him and just focus on the way he approaches the game? Yeah, and I encourage young broadcasters, you have to, what's going to make you stand out is you, the personality. Uh, obviously how you call the game, but the person behind the, the, the call is, is what's going to make you stand out among many. So I never thought about imitating. What I tried to take from Ernie was how he drew you in, uh, how he gave a good call for both teams without getting, oh, you know, the Tigers just give, you know, he, he'd give a good call for both teams. Now it's better for the home team, obviously. Um, but just, you know, we're, we're different broadcasters, but he had, there are some basics in broadcasting that I think hold true, whatever your style is. You have to get the listener's attention. You have to make them want to listen. He did that. He did it through a lot of storytelling and just the, I mean, just that ease of delivery. I mean, I pulled out some, I'm teaching a short class at Michigan State on play-by-play, and I pulled out some old tapes that I had of Ernie, and just like, geez, it just, there was something about that voice that just drew you in, and that's a, that's a gift, and he had it, but I do think, I just tried to take away from how he called the game, and then, obviously, you can't imitate Ernie Harwell, and you wouldn't, you'd be foolish to try, and I think you really shouldn't try to imitate anybody. You can always take why are they good? Take that away from listening to somebody good and then apply it to yourself. But it's your own personality is going to distinguish you from, from the rest of the crowd. After the 2002 season, I've always wondered, given the way things went in 1991, as we all know, did that make it more important for Ernie once 2002 came around to have someone follow him whom he had groomed and either implicitly or explicitly blessed as a successor? And was that important to you as well, because only with that implicit blessing would his audience accept you as the next lead voice? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I think, yeah, implicit meaning I just think he, he didn't make a big um, deal of it, but I do think how it was handled in the early 90s so poorly <laughs> that um, he did want the smoother transition. And I do think what that showed was it's very hard, and Rick Riz is a good friend and a terrific broadcaster for Seattle. It does show you that familiarity is important when you're replacing a legend. And I, I think he recognized that. Um, and that's why three years as his middle innings guy, as well as a guy who'd been in the market since the late 80s, that familiarity certainly helped when they decided who to pick uh, after he retired in 2002. And I do think... I think, you know, very quietly, he never really said anything, but I, I think he had a hand at helping make that decision. You know, I sat around for a couple of months after the season, and <laughs> that decision was not made quickly, much to my chagrin. <laughs> but in the end, uh, they finally got the word that uh, that's how they were going to go with Jim and I in the booth. Um, I do think he quietly, behind the scenes, made some, some comments, and um, I don't think he, he wanted credit if that's, exact, if that's indeed what happened. But uh, I think he certainly the Tigers probably learned from the what happened in the early '90s, and uh, and he probably had a thing or two to say about about that and how it should be handled the next time. And then in 2003, 119 losses. Did you think it was the curse of following Ernie Harwell? 
No, no, it was uh, maybe for me it was a, not a blessing, but uh, certainly I was operating under the radar that year. <laughs> People listened early, and then uh, there was definitely some nights when you just felt like saying, uh, thanking individual listeners for listening. Stephen Sterling Heights, we appreciate you listening tonight. I mean, that's how it felt. I'm sure there were more than that. People always listen, but that was uh, that was an amazing season. And you know, I always think back to. I mean, the advice that Ernie gave, it sounds so simple, but I'm telling you, it helped so much. The first year when the Tigers had traded for Juan Gonzalez, and they were trying to make a big splash in a new ballpark, and they were 9-23 and that year. And I remember asking Ernie, you know, how do you – I've never called a, a baseball season at any level, 162 games. I, and I'm thinking, am I even going to like baseball at the end of the season? <laughs> and I remember asking him, how do you do this when your team isn't good? And he just said, remember, there's always somebody listening, so give them a reason to listen to that game that day, you might see these are the three things that just, you know, kind of are the basics for any day. You might see a great individual performance. You might see a great game between two bad teams. And you might see a great something you've never seen before. And uh, all those things are true. And it rem- just a simple reminder why we love the game, why I listened in 1975 to probably a portion of every one of those 19 games that they lost consecutively in the middle of the summer. I just like listening to baseball. So give them a reason to listen to the game that day. And that helped me. Now, that was 2000. And think of it, the next few years when that team actually got hot and played decent baseball. But 2001 went from 96 to 106 to 119 losses in three consecutive years. <laughs> So you just found things to talk about. I always think of how great Tram was, the manager. We did the manager show. I'm pretty sure we did it every day that year. Now I just do the home games. But that's 162 interviews talking about a team that lost 119 times. And um, he always found something to talk about. He always found, you know, things that they were working on. And that was a great reminder. There's always something going on. There's always teaching going on. I will never know the game at the level that an Alan Trammell or anybody who plays it knows it at the major league level. I can try, but there are so many elements to every position, strategy, that you just don't think about, that I'll, I won't think about. And the, the beauty of my job is I get to learn about it from those who know it best and hopefully pass along a little bit of that knowledge every day, uh, possible, uh, to listeners. So... Uh, Long answer to a to a question, but I just think that advice served me well. And and even like this last September, this last September was worse than 2003. The Tigers were six and 24 uh, in September, which was worse than 2003. And yet, still, I'm going to the ballpark. I'm talking to the Ian Kinslers of the world, the Matthew Boyd's of the world, Jordan Zimmerman. I can still learn something about this great game. And um, again. You know people are tuning in less, but some are still tuning in, so give them a reason to listen to the game that day. And talk about you never know what you're going to see. It was that last month in September that we saw the near no-hitter by Matt Boyd and then Andrew Romine playing all nine positions in one game, so you never know. Yep. There's always something. There's always something. And that's relevant as we look ahead to this season where the Tigers don't have postseason hopes, although it shouldn't be as bad as it was in 2003. There are some positives on this roster. No, I, I think this year, I mean, there's still, there's, I mean, those, those teams in the early 2000s were thin. Uh, you've still got the possibilities. Now, there, there's a lot of ifs, but still, you've got the possibility Miguel Cabrera can be back to being Miguel Cabrera given good health. I, I believe that. 
Victor Martinez a longer shot. And yet, at 39, we've seen with David Ortiz, a designated hitter who hits the ball hard, as Victor did last year, still has a chance, I think, now that he, you know, he hits him off the field. You know, I think he's just worried about his heart. Who wouldn't be when you had that problem continue to crop up? I mean, assuming good health, he could be a force. I mean, you'll see the, the, the development of, you know, Candelario, and you'll see can Mikey Matuk be an even better player than we saw last year. I mean, Norris and Boyd intrigue me because, believe me, there are a lot of teams who would love to have those two. And I think Chris Bazio is one of those pitching coaches who just has a knack for communicating in a way that maybe gets through to pitchers who others couldn't get through to. And it's no fault of anybody's. But, I mean, look at the job he did with Jake Arrieta, a great talent and not much in the way of performance with Baltimore or Kyle Hendricks or Pedro Strope or Jason Handels. I mean, these are uh, all guys who underperformed and, and thrived under Chris Bazio. So I just think that the Tigers have some possibilities there. So who knows? I mean, right now it looks like a team that, I don't know, 70-75 win. But you, the Twins last year showed <laughs> you can't predict a baseball season very accurately, ever. When you take a broad historical look, you're the latest in a line of Tiger broadcasters that goes back over 90 years to Ty Tyson in 1927. Are you surprised by the resilience of radio over that time? It survived the emergence of television, survived the internet. Now we have the AtBat app, which can tell us all, any information we need to know about the game we're watching or listening to. How do you explain that unique connection that radio makes with listeners? And when you're broadcasting, do you picture listeners listening in their backyards at the beach, hearing you call the game? That's a good question, and it has to the test of time. And I think it's not necessarily unique to baseball. I just think baseball has the advantage of being a summer sport. And I've argued that as long as people are outside in the summer, <laughs> uh, on their boats at family gatherings, just outside, period, in their cars, there's going to be a place for baseball on radio. And I, just, I do think the legendary announcers from Tyson to Heilman to Ernie, the, it is something that's kind of passed down, unlike any other sport from generation to generation. I, I know that the audience is getting older for baseball, but I also know that there are a lot of young people, because of things like the MLB at that app, uh, who are listening. And are very, you know, because their parents listen. And again, people are outside, and, and really it's kind of different than other states. I don't think it's the same maybe in Florida, where people aren't outside as much in the summer. <laughs> it's unbearably hot. Uh, other parts of the country, but I think in the Midwest, people enjoy the outdoors so much in the summer, and baseball has become a part of that in so many cities, that uh, there is that unique relationship, I think, between baseball, fans, radio, and there are so many ways to listen right now that even though people don't get the old radio out and sit in the backyard, I know people still do, uh, but there are so many ways to listen that they, they do listen. They do listen in, in big numbers, and you hear from a lot of them. And um, it's a to me, it's a serious thing. You're kind of just I'm I'm the caretaker of this great tradition. I want to make sure that I hand it off to the next guy in, in, in good shape. <laughs> You talked about your great memories of Tiger Stadium and the 68 team. It's sobering for me to think that we have a generation of fans, any fan under the age of 20, never saw a game at Tiger Stadium. And looking ahead to this year, we are going to look at the established players and the young players coming up, but it's also a year for looking back, celebrating the 50th anniversary of that great 68 team. 
celebrating two new Hall of Famers from the 84 team, and I assume you'll be emceeing the on-field events celebrating those occasions. For a new generation of fans that never saw those teams and those players, what's the importance and what's the approach to telling their stories? I think it is important, and that's why I think you know one of the great things Mike Ellis did was make sure that he included former Tigers every spring training as special instructors or on staff. I mean, Al Kaline still goes on the field every day in spring training. It's pretty neat um, because it, there is that passing down that knowledge. It, it does matter that this is the 118th year of Tigers history. There is something about putting on the old English D that should instill pride in the player, and I think I think that's one of the most valuable things. This is a franchise that. Had a lot of success in recent years and down through the years, and uh, you pass that along to the young players. And there's there's a certain pride that comes along with wearing that uniform that I think uh, absolutely matters in the day to day. And you know, for young fans, they'll they'll know uh, the '68 team and all the amazing stories that went along with that team, um, the riots, of course, that occurred the year before, and you had a newspaper strike in '68, and so. And there are a lot of stories and a lot of great personalities and a lot of great players from that team. And then Jack Morris and Alan Trammell, it's so neat to see them going in together in that team from 1984, 35-5 is the number that will always stick out. And uh, that will maybe never be duplicated, probably won't be in our lifetimes, a 35-5 and five start. So, yeah, there, there's some great stories. Uh, there was a great conversation on stage at the kickoff dinner the other night uh, downtown with Kurt Gibson and Alan Trammell and Jack Morris. And uh, just to see Jack Morris and how he has changed and how humbled he is by this honor and how uh, emotional he gets just talking about it, uh, you, you realize uh, how important the history is to this game and, and the figures in it. Well, Dan, those summers in the backyard that we talked about sound awfully good right about now. We will be listening both to follow some of the young players coming up and also to follow all the historical celebrations this year. Dan, really appreciate your time today. Enjoy Lakeland and have a great 2018 season. Well, I really appreciate it, Nathan. It was a good conversation, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Dan Dickerson is the radio voice of the Detroit Tigers. You've been listening to the Tigers History Podcast. I'm Nathan Birma. The Tigers History Podcast is not affiliated with the Detroit Tigers or Major League Baseball. The Tigers History Podcast is a proud partner of Detroit Sports and Entertainment. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. Follow us on Twitter at Tigers History, and join us next time for the Tigers History Podcast. <laughs>